This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem and the fascinating people that make it tick. This week, your host, Michael Green, speaks with Jim Cosgriff, founder and partner at Cosgriff Lawyers in Echuca, country Victoria. Our original recording with Jim had to be rescheduled due to the recent floods, and we'll hear more about their devastating effects and the incredible resilience of the Echuca community in our conversation today. Jim was first introduced to the law as a boy, sitting in the back of the Shepparton Courthouse watching his dad, Magistrate Brian Cosgriff. Affectionately known as Cosy, Jim's dad was held in high esteem for being a fair and effective magistrate. But from all reports, he also didn't mind bringing some humour to the courtroom when the time was right. There's a lot of famous stories, but one which always sticks in my mind was his early days in the city court where a fellow from New Zealand had travelled over and had um, stolen a newspaper for some reason when he'd had too much to drink. So Dad asked him how much money he had on him and he said he had $90 on him. So Dad said, "Um, I'll give you 30 bucks to get home. I'll snip you 30 bucks for the poor box and I'll leave you with $30 provided you back this horse, whichever it was, and it ended up winning. morning, I would like to welcome Jim Cosgriff from Cosgriff Lawyers in Echuca as our guest on Lives in the Law. Morning, Good morning, Michael. Jim. Yeah. Good morning. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming down and we're pleased you're able to get down yeah, in, the, in these very strange times. Jim, you've got an interesting background in the law, particularly because your dad started as a clerk of courts and then became a country magistrate. Tell us what it was like growing up and, and the clerk of court system, which no longer, well, in terms of magistrates starting off as clerks of court and then becoming magistrates, no longer exists. Yeah, that's right. Back then, Michael, they um, appointed magistrates from a variety of places, including the clerk of court system. So dad was a clerk for, you know, possibly eight or nine years. And then um, he didn't need a law degree to apply to become a magistrate, but you needed a certain number of law students, or sorry, law units, um, which he got. And he was appointed in 1976, I think. And his first appointment was to the city court. And then uh, a couple of years later, we moved to Shepparton, where he was sort of the presiding magistrate for that region. Uh, and back then it was a big region. Uh, Shep only sat sort of one day a week, so Dad was on the road a lot to the uh, satellite courts, uh, sort of Murderflood, Beechworth, Benalla, when they had these little courthouses before they were sort of regionalised and sort of focused into one spot. And did he have other magistrates to work that region with him, or was he on his own? He had, uh, when he went there, he was on his own. Then uh, Graham Murphy was appointed shortly after that. So Dad and Murph sort of had one week on and one week off, one week in Shepparton and, and one week away on the road. And as a young bloke, I was um, one of four siblings at that stage with three sisters. So for everyone's respite, I'd get loaded in the car with Dad and take off to the, <laughs> the local courts, which was great. So we had a little 120Y Datsun at that stage, which Dad drove. So we would go to the country courts and I'd stay with him and sit in the back of the court, etc. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful times. If you were charged with an offence, stealing, let's say, would you like to come before Magistrate Cosgrove? Yeah, Dad had a a really good way of using humour. He had a he had a stick dad and there was certain things that he didn't like and stealing was one of them, drink driving was the other. 
Um, he tended to be harsh in terms of penalty on those, but he had great empathy for the common man. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of famous stories. Your listeners might remember the Beak of the Week Award, which Triple R Radio used to give out. Uh, back in the day, and Dad won that one year, um, you know, for a number of funny incidences in court, but one which always sticks in my mind was his early days in the city court where a fellow from New Zealand had travelled over and had um, stolen a newspaper for some reason when he'd had too much to drink. So Dad asked him how much money he had on him and he said he had $90 on him. So Dad said, um, I'll give you 30 bucks to get home. I'll snip you 30 bucks for the poor box and I'll leave you with $30 provided you back this horse, whichever it was, and it ended up winning. <laughs> so he certainly brought a sense of humour to it, but um, when he got cranky, um, he could be harsh on penalty. But he was a man to listen to when he was tipping racehorses. Indeed, yeah, no, he, he certainly uh, he certainly loved that. And Jim, your mum, and you've mentioned um, three sisters, uh, was that the extent of the family, you and no, three girls? younger brother arrived a little bit later, um, and they're all, except for my brother, they're all still in ship, so um, they're doing well. Dad passed in June last year, so I'm sort of working through that at the moment. And I've got a sister who I call Rupert Murdoch. She owns the New Merca Free Press, which is a free newspaper. <laughs> so I'll give her a plug. Uh, it's worth giving her a plug because surely it can't make any money. <laughs> no, it can't. <laughs> and um, the um, legal fees on going into it weren't very considerable either, so <laughs> we looked after it. Was your mum a stay-at-home mum with five kids? It was a full-time job there. Uh, yeah, mum was a nurse. So mum, um, when we lived in Melbourne and in Shepparton, mum would work night shift on weekends, so dad would be in charge then. So, no, it was really a, a, a partnership between the two of them. Um you could get away with a bit with Dad, but, but you couldn't get away with much with Mum. <laughs> she knew what was going on most of the time. Most mums do. Yeah. I want to jump ahead a bit, so um, to skip to skip across your primary school and early secondary school, because when you're in your second last year of secondary school, year 11, you go to South Africa on a rotary scholarship. Mm. This is, I'm, I was guessing it's about 1985? Yeah, correct, 1985. So South Africa in 1985, I've got no idea whether Nelson Mandela had come to power at that stage or whether it was still a country ruled by apartheid? It was. We were in the grip of apartheid um, and I, I think I'm right in saying that Mandela wasn't released until about 1990, so it was very much a segregated society, which was a real eye-opener. Um, I still remember arriving on the plane um, by myself and getting into the car with the first host father. So you were passed around to different families and this was the first one I was with him. When we were on the road, he told me to open the glove box um, and there was a fully loaded pistol in there and he was uh, said to me, if anything happens, I don't want you to use it, but give it to me. And so carjackings were very common. I think I'm right in saying there was about 22,000 murders in South Africa in 1985, and there might have been 400 in Australia in the same year. So uh, it was a really volatile, uh, difficult country. Um, having said that, my experience as to the most part was very sanitised um, because uh, the, there was a lot of gated communities. The private school I went to, Pretoria Boys High, was... Um, almost exclusively white, except there was one black student at the school um, whose father was a surgeon in Kenya. Stanley Nechituka was his name, I remember, because I'd have to stand up at assembly once a month and give a report on my activities and you'd look out into the sea of faces and see Stanley sort of at the back left-hand corner. He was in his final year. So it was a, a really interesting experience. Um, you know, at a personal level, 
you walked into a house where there were maids who were treated quite poorly. There was a garden boy, although the garden boy, of course, was a fully grown man with a family somewhere, but he would live in the garden shed um, at the bottom of the garden. And I don't know what he did for food, etc. So vastly different to my experience here. When we were able to get out and about into the countryside, you got a a better sense of things, but often you would go to parks with signs up, whites only, no coloureds or blacks allowed, etc. And that was pretty confronting. And a couple of times the cohort decided that we wouldn't go into a particular park or place if if they were the prohibitions that existed. And that led to some conflict with our guides, etc. So it was really interesting. Reflecting back on it now as uh, an older person and with apartheid having been dispensed with, uh, I'm sort of amazed at the way society operated, the the old buses that would break down that would be for the coloured people, the, um, uh, the, they couldn't line up with you, they couldn't use the same toilets. It was extraordinary. So, and thankfully now, subject to widespread change. So we're only talking about um, 35 years ago or something. Mm. You say vastly different to life in Australia. Did you see much racism in rural Australia, i.e. Shepparton? I did. Um, I did, although... It wasn't systematic. It was probably more subtle. Certainly the school I went to um, in Shepparton had a a mix of cultures, including Indigenous people, so... um, and we could all, of course, travel on the same means of transport, go to the same movie theatres, eat at the same restaurants, etc. But certainly reconciliation with our First Nation people is problematic, and that, that is evident, I think, in the country where... Uh, we've got wonderful values and resilience and all of those things, but we might need to catch up a little bit, I think, on that front. Looking back now to your experience in South Africa, would you say it was a major formative experience in your life? Absolutely. What it made you do is get immediately out of your comfort zone because despite the fact that you lived with and were part of a family, you were really a guest in that environment for three months. So having to speak publicly all the time, so once a week at the Rotary meetings, once a month at school, and then uh, we travelled a lot as a, as a group and we would speak at uh, nearly every Rotary club we went to, you'd be invited to, to stand up and speak. I was 16 at the time, so not that the opportunity was wasted on me, but I was certainly looking through very young eyes at the, at the political landscape. So school started over there at 7am and finished at about 12.30pm and there was no television. Um, Sorry, there was television for about two hours at night and ironically... In in 1985, in South Africa? In South Africa. Two hours television a day? A a day and the very first television show on, ironically, was Prisoners, the Australian (laughs) drama. Then it would go to a news and that was it. Um, So everyone's in bed at sort of 8.30, 9 o'clock. Not every house had a telephone. Um... Uh, maybe every second or third house would have had a telephone. Uh, so it's a com- really different society. And I went to a non-denominational school, Pretoria Boys High, which I'd imagine what it would be like for a country person perhaps going to a Scotch college or a Xavier. Um, very formal, hats, ties, blazers, so completely different to St Colman's in Ship where you didn't have to tuck your shirt in or... Was a, a, um, a completely different experience all round. Jim, moving on to uh, your university days, you initially wanted to be a journalist, but you chose law at Melbourne University. Why originally journalism and why didn't you do journalism? Why did you take law? 
Oh, that's a good question, yeah. Um, I think having lived those experiences in South Africa and having seen that systematic racism, having drawn some correlations between that and the lived experience in uh, rural Victoria, um, I felt the challenge was to tell that story to people in a way that could be sort of transmitted broadly and journalism seemed like the right vehicle. I liked I liked to write. I still like to read and particularly good literature and I'm really interested in politics, so it seemed like a natural fit. I set the RMIT journalism exam whilst I was on schoolies in Queensland, actually, and was fortunate enough to get an interview and was admitted. But during the course of the interview, one of the um, professors from RMIT said, having known that I'd also been accepted into law, that perhaps I should go and study law and then come back to journalism because the law degree would be a really good general degree. It would teach me how to be logical um, and uh, how to sort of understand the written word better. Uh, So I was... um, I decided not to do journalism and went to Melbourne Uni to do law. And going to Melbourne to do law, what was the balance of the place between city kids and country kids? Did you have a lot of um, peers, kids you could relate to, starting law with you? Where did you live when you came to Melbourne? Yeah, um, I uh, was the only kid from Shepparton in that year studying law, as it turned out. So I turned up to Melbourne Uni wanting to meet the only kid from Melbourne Grammar or the only kid from Xavier. And I realised there was large groups of people from each of those private schools studying law. That's not to say there wasn't a lot of clever people coming out of Shepparton. They just weren't focused towards the law in that in that year. On my first day, I sat through half a lecture of uh, accounting in the um, Redmond Barry building, whereas my lecture was in the Richard Berry building. I couldn't tell the difference between the two. Interestingly, though, my good friends in that first year who were guys I didn't know were also country kids. Um, a guy from uh, Benalla, Greg Manning, Peter Clark also from Benalla. And so the country could sort of join together, I guess. But it was a different experience. Uh, it was great. I didn't really, I must say, enjoy the start of the the law course. I lived down in Burwood with my grandparents, uh, which uh, was a wonderful experience, which I wouldn't give up. And they both passed sort of during my first two years whilst I was out there with them. But by that stage, coming towards the end of the second year, I started to understand, uh, I guess, the beauty of the law, if I can call it that. And once you look at your personal evolution as a lawyer, you you see the law in its entirety. Uh, It can be capricious and swift. Uh, It can be benevolent. Um, And you look at those uh, equity decisions that came out during my sort of course, um, and the Mason High Court, the Baumgartner case about constructive trusts, um, you know, more recently, Marbo. So there's a there's a wonderful narrative that, that flows through it. It's not necessarily represented in your everyday practice all the time, but I started to understand the broader nature of it and thought that I could fulfil perhaps making uh, making my local community better rather than informing them through journalism, but rather than through practising law. And so you enjoyed your time at uni and you enjoyed studying law? Absolutely. By the time I finished, um, I would say that I fell in love with law without wanting to, you know, unnecessarily romanticise it um, or dramatise it too much, but I really did. I started to understand the nature of it, why it, how it operated, and it operates at so many different levels. Uh, there's, you know, all the complicated tax stuff that sits at one end, then there's the, the drug court, curry court experience um, wound in throughout. So 
and you you try and bring that alignment with uh, your, your your values to the way you practice. That's really important. So speaking of practice, you do your articles at a small city firm, yep. Williams, Weider and Higgs. What style of firm was that? I call it a little country firm in the middle of the city. It gave me validation when I started there that I had done the right thing because I'd interviewed at a number of places and, and had been offered a couple of positions, one at a bigger firm. But Bruce Curl, who was the then senior partner at Williams Winter, was such an engaging, brilliant man that during the course of the interview, I really couldn't go anywhere else. And I loved it. Uh, had terrific art schools experience. So I sort of became a partner there uh, within about four years. Bruce could see the nub of a legal problem from 100 yards even if it wasn't a legal problem. Uh, Bernie McMahon, terrific technician, Mickey Ergenson and Mick Scully. But they practised with passion, those guys, and with excellence. So they didn't suffer fools. You couldn't you couldn't be lazy. You needed to work hard. It's John McArdle, who uh, John's just a brilliant lawyer, a terrific fella. Uh, John would give you life experiences as well as as well as um, uh, legal experience. So I, I was lucky. I had a really well-rounded articles. Back then you sat in the office of the partner to whom you were stationed at that time so you could hear them. This was pre-computers, didn't have your own telephone. So really an immersive experience. And in that time you did, you did a lot of crimes comp work? Did. And clergy abuse work? I did, or they one oh, and the same thing? Oh, no, mutually exclusive. Um, we did a lot of crimes comp work and I'd almost forgotten that. It was really interesting. The good thing about it from a, uh, a legal skills point of view was the advocacy. So you would appear before the Crimes Compensation Tribunal, which was presided over by magistrates with your client and each hearing might take 20 minutes or half an hour. So that was anything from... And, and, and maybe crimes comp is now done at VCAT, I think? Yes, that's right, yeah. And the system's significantly pared back. Back then there was maximum compensation of $20,000 and the cost aspect were reasonably uh, remunerative for lawyers. So it was a good experience. I mean, there's, I acted for um, the surviving member of the Burwood murders who there was three people murdered in Burwood in the early 90s and this uh, young guy had gone away to the, for the weekend for a 21st, so he was immediately under suspicion. And I still remember him. He was a terrific young guy. And what, he, he was a, a, a suspect in the crime, but yes. had not committed it? No, indeed. Had knew nothing about it um, and had arrived back the next day to the house. He was interesting because he told me that he would then walk around uh, St Kilda at three in the morning, sort of wanting someone to confront him to see whether he could have made a difference mm. at the time. So the crimes compensation work was um, interesting. We had the um, the Broad Arrow Cafe murders, of course, um, and we acted for a lot of people in Victoria that had lost their parents in that. So broad, broad stretch of work. A lot of bank robberies back then. Um, so now you, you said that you would turn up at the scene of a bank robbery, interview the people, and then do their crimes compensation claims. Correct. So we would turn up. Uh, shortly afterwards, be put in an office and I might see 12 or 15 people, so that the punters who are in the bank and the bank staff, sign them all up, get the applications in, <laughs> now that I think about it. And I would have been, I don't know, maybe I was in my articles then or my first year. Early to mid-20s at the most. Yeah, and I remember saying to people, it, it seemed really odd to me that I was sitting behind the desk sort of taking their statements. Uh, so really good work because that work would have, you know, that work was reviewed by Bernie and and. Bernie McMahon and Mick Jurgensen, and so you learned pretty quickly if, if one of your witness statements wasn't up to scratch, <laughs> you'd, 
You, you also had um, a client or clients who were affected by the Port Arthur massacre? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So that's that uh, uh, Broad Arrow Cafe I did. So I um, marked it for a family that had lost their parents and uh, went to see the five siblings in the house um, over here and we lodged applications through the Victorian system because this is where they'd suffered the injury. Uh, that was really confronting. I think I would have been... You know, perhaps still in articles at that stage. I, I still remember that family. Um, it was just very harrowing for them. As, as a young lawyer, not hard-bitten with a big, hard uh, shell or carapace uh, to protect yourself, how did it affect you? It did. I think at the time you're so earnest uh, and to give some context at that stage, I was married and had uh, our first child. Um, so working and aspiring to success was pretty important. Um, so you had to apply yourself. It wasn't as if I was footloose and fancy free. So when you were asked to jump into a situation, you simply jumped into it. So whatever that might be. And the firm weren't unfair about that. They were, they were really supportive. But it just meant um, you had to exercise a lot, you had to try and you know, look after yourself, not informed about the mental health aspects of it, which were more residual, I think, than immediate, but it was difficult. What about the clergy abuse cases? How did how did they come about? Because I have a, a recollection that Williamsburg and Higgs also acted for an order of Catholic brothers. They did subsequently, subsequently. more recently. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, back then we had a network through an organisation called Broken Rights. And so we sort of had a number of referrals coming through there for clergy abuse. Uh, they are the most difficult, horrendous cases. And I had some personal experience only in this context that when we lived in Melbourne, we lived in Gladstone Park and uh, we had a priest there called Billy Baker and Billy had abused a couple of local kids, one of whom I knew quite well and I didn't find out for many years later that he had been Father Baker's victim. But Dad and uh, Brendan Murphy, uh, the uh, QC, had found this out and went out to Raheen to see Sir Frank Little and to tell them about Billy Baker and what he'd been up to. Um, and they couldn't get past the foyer. Sir Frank Little said it was despicable, to which they agreed. And he said, no, that you would raise this allegation against a man of the cloth, get out of the house. So Dad gave evidence before the um, the Royal Commission and um, and there's a number of pieces of litigation at the moment around those circumstances. Um, I didn't find that information out till somewhat later, but uh, I think it took its toll. I mean, the real story here is the victims of the abuse, not the advisors, but at a, you know, at a close personal level, I don't think I was quite ready at that age for the emotional effect that those types of cases have on advisors. Um, I've got absolute admiration for lawyers that have remained in that space and have continued that fight because it's difficult work. Back then, the uh, church took every technical defence available to it, brought strikeout applications. You're acting for worthy plaintiffs, but who were not wealthy people. Um, so and, and the church used its economic might to try to crush those Absolutely. People. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and I'm still friends with a, a couple of those people for whom I acted. One fellow in particular um, looks me up once a year and we, we catch up for a coffee. It was really interesting but difficult work. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist. 
one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers lists in Australia. Greens lists believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. For all of that, and obviously your respect, if not love, for Williams, Winter and Higgs, you decide you've got to go bush. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Take us through that process. We um, we reached out. You, you became a partner of Williams Winter and Higgs. So, I did. You know, you had a, a significant um, role within the firm. Sure. But you had to go bush. I did. We reached a halfway position, um, Susie, my wife and I, and we moved to Macedon um, for about three years thinking that uh, Susie was also a country girl, although perhaps enjoyed the city a little more than I did. But when it was time for the kids to go to school, I couldn't really fathom the prospect of them going to school in Melbourne for some reason. So we moved out to Macedon, which was great, except for the commute um, in and out each day. So I remember we talked about moving to the country and at that stage, Williams Winter had visited an office in Echuca about once a month and I was the designated person because my wife's parents lived in Echuca. CityLink opened and I was in the car on the very first day thinking this will be great, I'll be in the city in 35 minutes, but it's the same traffic jam that I'd hit. This is coming from Macedon. This is coming from Macedon, Michael, yeah. So I'm sitting in traffic and on the radio I hear that they'll hand CityLink uh, back to the people uh, in 2036. Uh, so I did the sums in my head and I would have been 65. And um, sort of felt like Banjo Patterson and um, Clancy the Overflow for a moment. The prospect of doing that wasn't realistic for me. Anyway, that night, as it turned out, we were going to a Tom Jones concert, my wife and I, and during the course of the day, I gave notice to Bruce Curl that I was going to move to Echuca, which didn't surprise Bruce. Anyway, as Tom walks onto the stage, I say to my wife, Susie, by the way, I, I've given notice today we're moving to Echuca, and then Tom starts with some ballad. <laughs> so in the middle of a Tom Jones concert, sing, he's singing What's New Pussycat or something, <laughs> well, you tell, you tell your wife you're going to move uh, up to Echuca. At this stage, I assume you had more than one child? At that stage, we had uh, four children. And she may have said to you quite rightly, Jim, how are we going to feed these four kids? <laughs> well, I think um, it, was, it was a longer drive home to Macedon than um, it should have been. And uh, I think her real point was that perhaps we should make these decisions together rather than you <laughs> making them on your own, which was a very valid point. And we did offer, I did offer to stay in the city, but Susie also wanted to move to the country and it was just a matter of where and Echuca seemed like a good opportunity. But it's certainly a step back in terms of revenue for the um, for the short term and I gave nine months notice so we were able to at least have time to sell up and, and move. Paint a picture of Echuca for us because the town itself obviously plays a significant part in how you practice the law and I guess each country town is unique, has got its own features. What's unique about Echuca? Well, I might go back in time a little bit. Uh, when I moved there in... 98, uh, Echuca was much more a sleepy hollow than it is now. For example, there'd be no coffee shops open in the morning. Um, the town would wake up much later than it does now. Now it's really vibrant. It's growing enormously, both it and Moama. Uh, the lifeblood of... Moama being the New South Wales town across the river. Yeah, that's right. In fact, we live in Moama. We live in the New South Wales side. Echuca's a really vibrant country town. It's only 202 k's from Melbourne, so it's really accessible. So we have a large uh, accommodation, hospitality, good quality restaurants, really good quality accommodation. There's always something on in Echuca. We've got a great riverboats music festival every year. We have the Winter Blues Festival, uh, a number of other food and wine festivals that take place. The lifeblood of the town's the Murray River, which runs through the, the middle of town. 
We have a really strong uh, First Nations representation in town, really prominent uh, and influential in the way that the town operates. The town is much more well-rounded now. When I went there, I think it, it might have been mired in old-fashioned ways, but now it's really progressive. And it's been a it's enabled me to evolve as a lawyer, as an employer, and really what I wanted to do was to sort of give back to the community, and Echuca's been a great springboard for that. What about the legal scene in Echuca when, when you um, first shifted there and now? There's about five legal firms in Echuca. When I went there, I went into practice with David and Jenny Stewart, so it was a really small practice, might have been three or four of us. And David and Jenny retired sort of within a year, and then I went into partnership with Jenny Orchard, uh, and Jenny and I were in partnership for a long time. It's a really busy town from a legal point of view. A lot of caravan parks in Echuca, a lot of uh, motels and a lot of restaurants. And because they're so prosperous, they change hands sort of every three to five years. The conveyancing aspect is massive. The greenfield developments on both sides of the river has been significant. When you say greenfield, Jim, what do you mean? Uh, So open space housing development. So a lot of people have made the river change, the sea change, to Echuca, um, most recently in COVID, but progressively over that period. I think Moama's been the fastest growing town in New South Wales year on, year off for, you know, perhaps eight or nine years now. We're about to get a McDonald's in Moama, which means we might have turned the corner. That's uh, no, a great town. Five firms. What comes across the desk of a typical country firm, if, if there is such a thing as a typical country firm, is everybody a general practitioner or do some firms specialise in family law or crime or whatever? Yeah, we have a couple of local practitioners who specialise in crime. Um, do their own appearances? Yes, indeed, yeah. To the level of trials or maybe just in the magistrate's court? Just in the magistrate's court, but contested hearings in the, in the magistrate's court. Uh, a couple of really capable uh, local advocates. And would you brief local advocates? If you don't do the appearance yourself? Generally, we would refer the work directly to the local advocate uh, in a contested matter, unless it's a a county court or Supreme Court matter, in which case I would keep the matter but brief counsel. Uh, And we've had a number of sort of high-level trials in New South Wales up at the Griffith Court that we've briefed um, QCs out of Melbourne in, for example. The typical, we had a lot of farming work, a lot of succession work built around farming and Typically with farms, one of the siblings, generally a son but not always, will remain on the farm. But, of course, the farm is the major capital asset of the family. And so managing that transition between respecting the um, connection that uh, the person who stays on the farm has but allowing the other people to participate in the accumulated family wealth. And historically, going back 100 years, typically the elder son got the farm and the younger siblings, well, good luck to you, go and make the best of it you can. Yeah. I assume there's been a change in that. There's still a lot of that 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 happens and it normally grounds itself in contested matters against the will um, where mum and dad either don't leave everything to the son who they, typically the son who they had promised everything to or leave everything to the son and then leave the others out. So we do a lot of that part for work as well, which spills out of that. But prevention is better than cure. So getting people in, getting those planning aspects right, establishing a sense of equity over the family and getting buy-in is the best cure. 
When you say getting buy-in, having the children who will be the ultimate beneficiaries involved in that process, that planning process. Get them in with mum and dad, sit down around the table, have those conversations, try and cut through the interpersonal difficulties that they might have with each other based on their historical relationships and then getting something down that, that everyone can be happy with. Any differences in the relevant legislation between New South Wales and Victoria? Not really. Um, It's probably more difficult to bring a Part 4 claim in Victoria than it is in New South Wales. New South Wales, the time limit's a bit longer. You've got a couple of years, whereas in Victoria, you've got six months from the grant. So they are different. And certainly one of the challenges of practising on the border is getting your head around the the legislation on both sides of it, Mm. you know, particularly with conveyancing because they're vastly different systems. Are they really? Yeah. I would have thought Torrance titles, Torrance titles, wherever you are. No, so there's no Section 32 statement, very little disclosure mm. obligations in New South Wales. Uh, so you're vastly different. And you've got to be registered now in both states. So we get a lot of Victorian referrals, whereas they might have done the work themselves historically because of the new PEXA system. You've got your feet on the ground in the country in the sense that because you live in the community and because you're acting for people, you prevailed upon over weekends, you're very accessible to the general public, which can be really rewarding. It can be also difficult at times when you're trying to find some personal space for yourself, but you'll speak to someone and you'll run into them in the supermarket, etc. So maintaining the maintaining integrity around confidentiality is really fundamental because it's a little bit different than if you told a story at a dinner party in Melbourne yeah. um, about a circumstance, whereas yeah. if you were to do that in the country, those circumstances would, would apparently reveal the people involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Jim, tell us about your firm, Cosgriff Lawyers. What size is it? Uh, What work do you do? How do you allocate the work? How does the work come in the door? Is it because you walk down the street and say hello to all your neighbours? <laughs> well, when I first moved to Echuca, I realised that you wouldn't get work if you sat at your desk for long hours, that the work was in the community. So you had to involve yourself. Now, whether as a younger person, when I went there, involving yourself in sport, but getting away from your desk and getting down the street and buying something at a local shop or participating in a sporting event or being involved with your kids at a coaching level or little aths or those things, that's how you met people. And meeting people was the conduit for getting work. So it had a dual benefit because you enjoyed getting out and about. Um, and I'm, I'm a social person, so I enjoyed meeting people. It also enabled me to establish a practice. You've mentioned your wife Susie a few times. I assume there's a burden on her as well to be in the community with you. You're, you're seen as a couple, but uh, it's not just Jim's the lawyer, Jim's the guy out there generating the work. It's a whole, a whole of family thing almost. It is, yeah, absolutely. So Susie would, um, Susie was big on us driving an annual event where we would get people along at a social event, so our clients, but more particularly people that weren't our clients, trying to introduce them to the brand and to the people behind the brand. She's... Uh, I mean, Susie's, I say, a lot smarter than I am. Um, and that might be... Sounds like your mum and dad. <laughs> might be correct. And that mightn't be difficult. But Susie was ducks of her uh, school and a really smart person. So for her to have, for us to have children young and for her to focus on my career was a real sacrifice. And um, she's now back, well, she's now teaching. She came to the, the teaching late and thoroughly enjoys it. But just really clever and was able to support me during those early years in Echuca. So about the firm, have you got particular values that you started out with and have tried to implement throughout the the life of the firm about how the firm operates, about the relationships between you and your staff, relationships with partners, 
relationship with the community. I was trying to sort of think through before this interview what our values are and without trying to define them too closely, but clearly being part of the community is fundamentally important. So I think we have a responsibility as lawyers with the skills that we've been lucky enough to have to give back at a high level at an opportunity that's appropriate. So putting yourself onto local boards, uh, contributing at that level is really important and that's something that we really try and instill in our staff. We've got a rule at work, really, you, you, you can't be at work after 5 or 5.15 at night. That It's just not healthy. So achieving balance in our personal lives as a means to being in the community and further as a means of getting work is important because you will not get work if you sit at your desk till seven o'clock at night. You will get work if you're seen in the supermarket, if you're if you're down volunteering, if you're out and about participating in sport or theatre or whatever your interest is, that's where you're going to get the work and that's where you're going to find balance in life. It, really interesting from a productivity point of view, how we've analysed that more acutely in the last three to five years and the efficiencies we get uh, from our people when they're able to achieve balance. So we've brought in things like really simple things, a rostered day off. Uh, we had work from home before COVID, but actively promoting people working from home and ringing them at five o'clock to make sure they've logged off and they're out um, and they're no longer tied to their computer. Because I know when I moved to the country, I moved there for the lifestyle, for the lack of commuting, for the... And when we moved there, we bought a boat, which was hilarious because i didn't know who was going to drive the boat or reverse it down the boat ramp, but um, we managed to do that between us. So we would go skiing after work, you know, with the kids. So all of those opportunities need to come to everyone, not just the people at the top. So it's been informed by my own experiences and been something we're really focused on over the last 10 years. So landing back to the values, it's not only the community, it's the people. The other thing we've noticed too is just our retention of staff since we've really doubled down on our focus about people. And it's also enabled our staff to engage really positively with our clients because they're now empathetic about their own circumstances. You bump into clients in the supermarket, and that's all very well. You might chat about their matter or whatever. What about family law, or family law in particular, where things can get very heated and nasty? Mm. And your firm's on one side and obviously the other, someone, another firm's on the other side and you bump into the other partner, the husband or the wife, and it's a nasty one. Does it get nasty with you in the supermarket where they... <laughs> no, it's not too bad, but you, do, you are careful when you walk into places and you do very carefully. So if I went to the pub on a Saturday afternoon, for as an example, um, you're pretty careful of the landscape and who's there and, and who you might need to be conscious of. And I have had some words with some people at different times. You've also got to have a really high level of empathy as a practitioner, and this isn't unique to country practitioners, but perhaps it's more immediate to us. But these are difficult times. And litigation, and in particular family law, exhausts people. It, it exhausts. I say people really have three resources available to them. Uh, they've got money. Family law will exhaust that if it becomes extended. They've got their mental health and it will erode that very quickly. And you've got your own personal time, the time you want to spend doing other things. Family law will find the weakest part of those and you need to understand that that's what's happening. So it's not about you, it's about their ability to cope with their current circumstances. Generally, it's difficult for people to fight if no one else gets in the ring with them. So you sort of let them swing themselves out 
and, and you move on. And generally, they'll be remorseful about it and it's unhelpful for them. But when you're involving children and long-term relationships, it's not difficult to see why people might get upset. You mentioned staff retention, and I think you have said is one of the biggest issues facing country firms. Why is that? And, and how do you deal with that problem? Sure. The pace of life in the country is different. So, you know, people say the sky in the country is bigger. Well, the pace of life is different. So having grown up in the country, I was assimilated to the pace of it. And the city's great, but it's hustle and bustle. I mean, you try and get on an escalator going up at a museum station and the number of people and the movement, etc. We move differently. It's it's quieter. It gives you the opportunity to do a range of different things that are more accessible. So getting people who aren't attuned to that, who move from the city with an idea of what the country might be, it's very difficult to get alignment, particularly if they're not socially orientated really quickly. That is, if you've got someone who came along who played a team sport, they, I think they would assimilate really quickly and meet a lot of people. But we've tried to make an effort as a firm when you get someone who might be a bit isolated to get that up and running, but it's really difficult. So our strategy more recently is only, when I say only, is to primarily employ people that have come from the country. It doesn't matter whether they've come from Warrnambool or Hamilton or or Wangaratta, but because they understand the pace of country life and that they're moving for the right reason. They're not moving only because this is the only job they could get, but they're moving because their values will align with our values, that they'll be interested in doing things in the community, that uh, they will immerse themselves. So our, our current staff retention with a couple of staff coming up for long service leave has been a product of that recruitment strategy, which has worked really well. And you asked how many people we have, Michael. So we've got 11 on staff at the moment. There's myself and my business partner, Sky and Guerta. He's got a couple of young kids. We got as big as about 28 people there at one stage, but I found that a difficult number of people to work with and manage. So coming back to 11 seems sort of the natural number for us. Moving on, Jim, it sounds, me being a city person, maybe I'll be one of those people who went up there and thought it would be ideal and it couldn't cope and have to come back, but it does sound an ideal sort of way of life, balancing your life. And yet 10 years ago, you hit a hurdle, quite a significant hurdle. What was the hurdle and how did it occur and how did it affect the practice? It was my first experience having a mental health injury because I was so driven, I think, for such an extended period of time out of um, high school trying to achieve the marks to get into law, getting into law, trying to achieve the marks to be, you know, an appealable candidate for employment, then having a family young, then moving to Echuca and having to establish a practice and throwing myself into the community to the point where my personal capacity was reached and I didn't understand the warning signs coming in. And that led to, you know, an extended period of anxiety and depression and recovery coming out. I was lucky I had some very supportive business partners at the time. And 10 years ago, you know, mental health probably wasn't as recognised and spoken about as it is now. The major thing for me in my own internal dialogue is it's uh, it's not the breaking of a person, it's, it's a gift. It's the making of a person to understand anxiousness and depression, it gives you an incredible sense of empathy when dealing with people. I'm now acutely aware of uh, the people that work with me and the clients I have 
as to their personal circumstances. If someone walks in and they've apparently got a broken leg or a sore back, you immediately compensate for that by offering them a chair or asking them about it or whatever it might be. Of course, we're very brave with our mental mental illnesses and, and, and part of the troubles with it is we're pretending that nothing's wrong when in fact there's a, a problem that can be cognitively treated and can be appropriately managed. So I feel really fortunate that I had that experience and it probably took me the better part of two or three years to be able to recover and only more recently to be able to share that journey with people. The important thing for me, I think, there's the interpersonal reflection about where your personal capacity sits and how you marry that up with the drive that you have to do things and then being able to pull back when you start to reach your limit and to understand that it's okay then to say no. It's okay then to leave work early on a particular day at three or four o'clock and go and have a golf or go for a swim or do something that is restorative for your mental health. Because in the past, my philosophy was, if you don't keep up with me, then you can't work with me. And that's really unhealthy for the people you work with, but also for yourself. Then there's the broader conversation. And I'm still not really satisfied that young lawyers coming into the system, that their mental health is prioritised in the way that it should be. We have these conversations now, but I still know that I get emails from larger firms at ridiculous hours at night, 10 or 11 o'clock at night, from senior associates who are working around the clock when in fact they shouldn't be. The matters are not time sensitive. So I'm hoping from a, you know, a a sort of a, a discourse point of view that that conversation keeps happening, that we actually build into our system. For example, I sleep every afternoon at three o'clock. So I've got a couch in my room and I put my feet up for 15 minutes. I've got a, a couch in another room and the staff, a couple of them avail themselves of that same opportunity at different times of the day. I say to people, if, if you're not at your desk because you're going for a walk around the block, that's great. If things get too much for you, make sure you tell us. And I'm open with my staff about my mental health journey um, because I, I want to be a better employer. Um, uh, I want our industry to be better for the lived experiences of those that, that love the law. Because it's a vocation, not an occupation. It's it's something you put your heart and soul into. It's not something that you do just to earn money or just to have status. It's such uh, an important role. And like all vocations, there's highs, there's lows. <laughs> you can get your butt kicked. And other times you feel like you're on top of the world and you've got to learn to ride those waves. It's interesting you say that, Jim. I have thought that's the biggest change in the profession in my working lifetime. Well, I've stopped working now, but of about 50 years, when I started, it was a vocation where earning money and status was coincidental to doing a good job on behalf of your clients. But it seemed to me that now earning money and status, in a lot of cases, are the aim of why people are lawyers. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think we're also losing people in large numbers from the profession Uh, at least a lot of people that I speak to have left to take either in-house jobs or jobs where their skills are are useful. So I think we need to not reinvent, but we need to have the conversations with young lawyers to make sure that they understand the alignment between the practice's values. So why is it we doing what we're doing? And to reflect our expectation of them in that. So I don't time cost, for example. I, I find the whole concept abhorrent. We try and value cost to try and work out, well, what is a reasonable value of the product that we're providing? So being a slave to a timesheet, for example, I think is counterproductive 
to it. But I don't disagree. And, and that's not to say that there's not it's an overwhelming number of lawyers that see the vocational aspects of work, um, but equally there are a large number that don't. And I've rationalised in terms of my own personal journey through the law, um, because I love it, that it only makes sense if it's a vocation for me. Otherwise, it would become an endless chain of transactions that really didn't amount to much. Interesting, Jim, and uh, challenging, I'm sure, to many people. At a profession-wide level, is anything being done about this? I mean, does the Law Institute provide advice, counselling, services to lawyers, at, starting with introductory lawyers through onto senior lawyers? Yeah, it's a lot better now than it used to be. Certainly there's counselling available for members of the Law Institute and you can always ring and have a conversation with someone at the Law Institute. Now, current immediate past president had a real emphasis on mental health within the industry. So the Law Institute, I think, yes, is doing wonderful things to be able to support the profession. It becomes a bit platitudinous, I think, in reality, when you get to the big firms and you become the rat on the wheel and you become subject to the expectation of a particular partner whose work ethic might be blindingly obsessing. And I remember as a young practitioner almost feeling terrified about saying the wrong thing or making a stupid comment, whereas really they should be all embraced. So we've got a long way to go, but I think it's it's healthy. I mean, I can sit here and not be embarrassed about my own mental health journey, whereas if you'd asked me five years ago, I would have pretended there was nothing wrong and I would have pushed through it. So we are making some inroads. In a, in a country town, in uh, practising in a regional city, are there, are there support services there for practitioners? Not really. If you're a member of the Law Institute, which, which our firm is, those services are accessible. Otherwise, I think you would be subject to the philanthropy of your employer, whether they'd make those services available. We, we certainly have an employee welfare system where any of our staff can ring a counsellor on an anonymous basis, which is, sits outside what the Law Institute do, because we're conscious of it. And we allow for people to have mental health days and we don't get everything right. But I like to think that uh, we get those aspects right. There's still a sense in the country, of course, of bravado. And I, I don't think men talk about mental health anywhere near as much as they do. I heard a staggering figure the other day of 2,100 men committed suicide last year in Australia on the radio, which is sort of mind-blowing when you when you work out the number per day. And, and I think um, the highest group in that, to, from anecdotally, I think, is young males in country areas. Yeah, that's right. Sense of hopelessness, and particularly if you're not... Education is power, so if you're, if you're able to get yourself educated and get out... When I say get out, uh, if you're able to make choices, that's a big thing. I don't know how, when I look at the farming landscape, we're in for a bumper year this year. It was um, one of the best years on record, and now the floods have wiped out 80% of the crops. Those poor buggers, their resilience is extraordinary, uh, but of course there's a high incidence of suicide amongst farmers. Jim, just to paint a picture of you um, and your work in the community, prior to this episode 10 years ago and your journey in the, in the subsequent 10 years, what was your community involvement? You as, as a, an active member in the community, and I'm assuming many lawyers in many country towns are active like you were and are, what was the extent of your community involvement? Yeah, my experience wouldn't be unique. You're right. There'd be um, practitioners right across regional areas participating in community events. Not long after I moved to town, I joined the board of the YMCA and I was president of the YMCA for four or five years. Then as great as the Chuka is, it had a hospital which was built in the 1890s and it was interesting in that people who were born in the same Baker wing, their kids were born and their grandkids were born in the same Baker wing and it really hadn't been renovated at all. So a local 
group got together and decided we'd run an advocacy program coming into the state election, I think in 96, if I'm right, which we did. And we had a public rally, the town closed, so all the shops closed. We all turned up at the hospital. And I led that public rally, which was a challenge because there was a lot of people there and I was pretty nervous, to be honest about it. And we ended up getting about $66 million in funding and we got a brand new hospital which is great. Federal and state funding or, or uh, philanthropy? Was, uh, no, that was all state funding. Yeah, all out of the Victorian state government. We got a small amount out of the New South Wales government given the reliance on the Echuca Health System for Moama. Uh, so that was a great milestone. And, and I was part of that. Not, um, you know, I stood on the shoulders of a, a, a lot of hard work by a lot of people. It was really rewarding. Out of that, two things happened. Firstly, the committee for Echuca Moama was formed. So there's a, there's a committee for system which runs around Australia. There's a committee for Geelong, there's a committee for Melbourne, there's a committee for Shepparton, a group of interested local people who then formally comprise themselves of a board and then interact with local government and funding, etc. So that committee was formed out of that and I was the inaugural president uh, of it. Um, I think Frank Costa was the inaugural president of the committee for Geelong, for example. Um, so it had some real currency. That committee then adopted the advocacy program for the new bridge. So we had a single bridge crossing between Echuca and Moama. One lane either way. One lane either way, yeah. And dealing with a, a local population which swells in the summertime to about 60,000 people. And can I say, this from currently a base of about 12,000, I read, I yeah, think. that's right. And back then, I guess, the base would have been significantly less. No, it'd be about 8,000. Yeah. So it swells. And so there's the inconvenience of it, but Moreover, there's the public health and risk of an ambulance trying to get across or a fire truck or any emergency vehicle. And, of course, when we had the COVID crisis hit, our bridge was closed in both directions, firstly by the Victorian government and secondly by the New South Wales government. So we were stuck with this one bridge crossing and it would literally take you an hour to drive three or four k's. So you would you would park on one side and walk rather than suffer that. So we were able to advocate and get money for the new bridge, which was great. So uh, the National Party leader, then Frank Ryan, Peter Ryan, Frank Ryan, uh, came to Echuca and announced the funding and the new bridge is just completed. Ironically, in our recent floods, it was the one to close because of flooding at one end of it, not the old bridge, which has stood the test the of time. The old bridge still open. <laughs> the old bridge remained open. Uh, but it's relieved it. But it's relieved all the pressure in town from the traffic, so. But, in fact, that proves the need for two bridges. It does. That's right, yeah. yeah. And they will close the, the old bridge, only, but only for uh, uh, repairs. It'll remain open. It's taken all the trucks out of town and et cetera. So circling back to the question, they're the things that sort of I've been involved in. Um, more recently, because of my personal capacity, I stepped back after those opportunities and really just focused on myself and family, etc. But more recently, council has traditionally had the management of what we call the Port of Echuca. So if you've been to Echuca in the middle of town, there's an historic wharf and an historic area. It's been a challenging area for council to manage and rightly or wrongly, it hasn't been able to reach its optimum performance. So council has now created an independent board of council to manage that space. Myself and one other local guy are on that board and the balance of the board comes from Melbourne and pretty pretty high functioning people. And so that opportunity is my, my sort of current... Is this to maximise the tourist potential of the area? That's right. It's to activate that space. So you might remember, Michael, I'm, I'm 
sure you've eaten there once or twice, but Oscar W's um, was a landmark uh, destination restaurant on the river. So it's no longer there. It's been dismantled. I remember a beautiful bottle of red wine, Jimmy, from Larry <laughs> Ocker in Spain. Someone <laughs> shouted, my wife and I. Oh, I'm pleased to hear that you enjoyed it. <laughs> Still remember it. So that space is gone. So the it sort of it was the central point of the wharf. But it's to activate it both from a um, commercial point of view and from a tourism point of view, but also to integrate our First Nations story into that area. And because we have uh, a number of different representative groups on both sides of the river and sort of dovetailing that in as well is an important component of the work we're trying to do. You've mentioned the recent floods and current, I guess, floods. When something as devastating as those floods hit a country community, do local lawyers have a particular role to play as lawyers or are you simply one more member of the community trying to, in this case, literally stem the tide, sandbanking, sandbagging, et cetera, et cetera? Or have you got a specific legal role to play? Both. So certainly a specific legal role, and particularly in relation to Rochester, which is just south of Echuca, only eight houses survived in Rochester from the flood. Yeah. which So that town has been wiped out. So there's people who would have insurance policies. Some of them would include flood cover, some wouldn't. So offering pro bono services to look at the policy and give them some advice by telephone and also including a number of people in Echuca. So offering that service and making sure that the right people in the community understand that they can pass the name on and ring. So there's been a real focus on trying to deliver that, certainly filling sandbags. It's the best and worst of things in the sense that the flood itself is catastrophic and was for the local farming community and for a large number of houses that were swamped. The beauty of it is, and what I love about the sense of belonging you get from the country, is how everyone just pulled together in an unspoken way. So everybody was filling sandbags. If they weren't filling sandbags, they were advertising that they had a ute and would deliver sandbags, or they were stacking sandbags, or they were helping people evacuate their houses. Such a nice organic way also to recognise the leaders in the community, the younger people who you might have known of, but to see them rise through naturally to positions of order in terms of the way they communicate, in terms of the way that they led. When you would be down filling up sandbags and the joy goes out of that pretty quickly, I can tell you that, um, the local restaurants would come down and there was free food up and down the lines. Uh, it was kids playing. There was a childcare centre created out of nothing in the middle of the oval and you couldn't drive, I couldn't drive at least down the main street without having to stop and if there was someone unloading sandbags, just get out and load. You didn't even know who they were, just help unload sandbags and that's not unique to me. That was that was across the whole community. So we did pull together. And those experiences aren't necessarily unique to the country, but we see it because we're living it. I'm sure in Maribyrnong uh, would have had many similar stories about mm. people who didn't know each other pulling together, making sure that people were unified. So it's a bit of a joint, a joint role for the profession. My business partner is involved in the ad hoc committee, which has been formed for the flood relief concert, which will be held sort of in February next year. So pulling all those strings together. Lives in the Law is proudly sponsored by City Maps Illustrated. Their recent publication, The Melbourne Map, is a celebration of our wonderful city. This stunning, hand-drawn illustration, which took more than three years to create, is available as an art print, jigsaw puzzle and calendar. The perfect acquisition for your home, office or corporate gifting. 
Tim, sitting here in William Street, Melbourne, looking north towards Echuca, apart from the floods, of course, we may have rose-coloured glasses on our eyes thinking about the wonderful community spirit and camaraderie there may be within the profession in a small town. Is that true or is there as much competitiveness and rivalry as there is among big city commercial firms? Oh, there's a healthy sense of competitiveness amongst the local firms, particularly if you um, are able to get your hands on a good property developer. So they're well sought after and that's a competitive aspect of the role. I think though um, there is a camaraderie. We, we refer work to each other uh, when we're conflicted and we might prevail upon each other from time to time for some advice. I think I've got the fortunate position of being either the eldest or second eldest practitioner in the town. So whenever a new lawyer comes to town, whether they're with our firm or not, they try and make contact with them just to welcome them to the profession. And that's not from a recruitment point of view. It's just to, to let them know that there is a camaraderie. There's some terrific local practitioners who have been there for a long time and who understand the law really well. So I think we we don't socialise too much together, but we do enjoy each other's company. You mentioned conflict there, Jim. Um, I assume in a small community, the potential for having a conflict of interest is greater than when you work in a city firm. Oh, yeah. The the first thing we do is, and it's normally vetted before it gets to me, but we would run our own check anyway, is to uh, run the conflict. And that's not only the, the person's name, it's their married name, who their partner might be, um, and trying to round out that whole experience. Uh, so it, it is interesting, though, from a conveyancing point of view in the country, we will regularly act for both sides of a conveyancing transaction, not when we're acting for a developer, whereas in the city that I don't think that would happen really very much at all. Now, checking your conflicts and not being conflicted out because you've had too long a conversation with someone uh, for whom you're ultimately conflicted, but you've received information which prevents you from acting for your existing client. Mm. Um, And that can be a trick that can be played, particularly on a young practitioner. So now you've got to be across uh, all of that. The longer you're there, the more you see the landscape, the more you know the family names, the more you understand the connection. One of the amazing things in the country is you've got to be so careful. Everyone seems to be related to everyone. <laughs> so you run into someone, oh, I didn't know you were that bloke's cousin. Um, it happens all the time. I got a couple of central characters who I think are related to every person on both sides of the river. Now, Jim, I think this uh, last question I'm going to ask you is what they, in political terms, call a Dorothy Dixer. Looking back over 25 years, have you any regrets about practising in a regional area? No surprise that the answer is no. I love it. I I really love it. I mean, the law is everything I dreamed of. I love the vocation. I love the people. I feel like I'm part of the town. I really enjoy going to work. I I really enjoy what I do. And the Chukra Moma has been a great place. It's enabled me to know my children really well. You know, if they're getting an award at school, you're there in five minutes and you're back at the office. And I think those things would be more difficult to achieve in the city. And I say to people, if they come to work for us, I'll give you two hours back a day, which I think is the average commute if you're coming in and out of the city to do with what you want. So I know it's been, it's been everything. I love Melbourne, but I love the country and oh, I couldn't think of anything better. Jim, thanks for coming all the way from Machuca down to Melbourne this morning to uh, tell us about your life in the law as a country practitioner. Good on you, Michael. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Show notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. 
There you'll find links to things we've talked about in this episode, a transcript of the show and some wonderful photos of our guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks, subscribe, rate and review the show. Your host is former lawyer and Greens List clerk, Michael Green. Our show is produced and edited by me, Catherine Green, mixed and mastered by Windmill Audio and recorded by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. We're coming to you from the iconic Owen Dixon Chambers on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respect to their elders past and present. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue that discussion here today. Today.